It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, and here's our text for this morning, able to teach. Sure, some of you this morning are remembering, as we look upon the date on our calendar, that today is uh, the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which, as you know, uh, began or traces its root to October 31st, 1517. Uh, that bold act of Martin Luther taking those 95 theses and, and hammering them to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg in Germany. As a result of that particular incident, an entire world-changing and church-changing movement took root, which we call the Reformation, or the Protestant Reformation. And out of that movement were many slogans, or at least after the fact of it, in the aftermath of it, many slogans emerged to describe in short sentences just what this Reformation was all about. And so you know them. Uh, soli Deo Gloria, to God be the Gloria, a Sola Gratia, a Grace Alone, Sola Christos, Grace Alone, a Sola Fide, uh, Faith Alone, and then of course we have Sola Scriptura. And that's one of those foundational principles of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura. In, in the sense of it, whether you learned a, a lick of Latin is plain enough to us all, that everything that we believe and everything that we practice within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must be grounded in the Word of God alone. And the reason is because God alone has authority. And that authority is mediated in and through the Scriptures. And so this was the battle cry of the Reformation. If the church is going to have a belief, it must be in the Word. If a church is going to have a practice in its worship, well, it must be grounded in the Word of God. That's a good principle. It tells each and every believer where they are to go to look for the truth. But just as soon as you confess that truth, you begin to realize that there might be a problem hidden within the slogan. And that is, how do you know what the Bible is saying? It's one thing to know where the truth is. It's another thing to say, well, how do you get the truth out of that thing? And so, we'll relieve ourselves really quickly here. Another slogan emerged at the time of the Reformation, which is indeed coined by the Reformers themselves, which is this. Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interpret Scripture. And so whenever there is a problem with an understanding of a particular text, uh, what the Protestants said you should do is turn to the Scriptures. If one Scripture is uh, unclear and another on the same topic is more clear, well then we have our means of interpreting and understanding the Word of God. And so the Westminster Confession contains this very principle within it, stated explicitly when it says all things in Scripture are not alike plain, nor alike clear unto all. And so how do you learn it? Well, it says that it is so clearly propounded or opened in some place of Scripture or other 
that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to the understanding. See, it begins here, or it, it fashions something that is very clear and obvious to us, which is this. Not every passage is as clear as every other passage. There are some passages, when you, when you think about it, and you read it, and you turn it over your mind, one, and two, and three, and four, and ten, maybe even a hundred times, you say, I have the faintest idea what it's saying yet. And then you take it to another text, and you shine the bright light of the Word of God somewhere else upon it, you begin to understand and to, and to grow in the understanding of the truth. So again, the Westminster Confession says the infallible rule. Now that's putting it even a little bit further, isn't it? It's one thing to say it is a rule or a means of interpretation. But now here in chapter 1, paragraph 9, it says the infallible rule of the interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. If something is obscure or hard to understand, search it by another place. So you see here, we don't just confess sola scriptura, we confess scripture interprets scripture. Just in the case there is a principle or a precept which is expounded or set forth in one text which is not too clear to us, we simply go to another. Well, all of this is sort of a grand preface, if you will, to our text this morning. Because I'm going to take that little Protestant Reformation interpretive tool and bring it to our text to what feels like a word or a set of words here in verse 2, which feels sort of straightforward, able to teach. Here we are expounding the qualifications of the office of elder, and we have one of those problem texts. We'll maybe say uh, some here this morning, see, there's no problem. For, for, for to me, this is very understandable. If the qualification for an elder is able to teach, it must be clear. Able to teach, duh. But then you realize that when this word is not used in the Bible, it means teachable. Is there a little bit of difference between able to teach and teachable? Well, I'd say so. There's a vast difference between the two. So what we asked this morning is the question, is the Apostle Paul saying that one who would be an elder is a teachable person? That's fine as far as it goes, but is that the qualification? Or is he saying the person who would be an, able must, uh, uh, an elder must be able to teach? Well, those are two very different qualifications. And so what do we do this morning? And by the way, why is it necessary to answer that question? One reason why it's necessary is because uh, there um, are a whole group of Reformed commentators who would say, yeah, it means teachable, not able to teach. Why? Well, because they said he's given the qualifications for elder. Where, where are we going to find the elders? If we make this a qualification for office, are they all going to have to go to seminary? Are they all going to have to have some advanced training or some extraordinary capacity? See, uh, there, there are many who would make the case that this text is not at all what you think it means. Having some ability to teach. And so, we... We've asked the question, and now we say we can answer it. 
this particular uh, word, when it's used in the New Testament, most certainly means able to teach. It may have just a little bit different nuance than we think at first glance. And so what we're going to do is use two New Testament passages to clarify what it means to be able to teach. One of those is 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, 24-26, and another is Titus 1.9, which is uh, a text which is parallel to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as we examine these texts, and as we see the ample light they shed upon this qualification, we're going to see that able to teach means the ability to apply the Word of God to the people of God for their well-being. The ability to apply the Word of God to the people of God for their spiritual well-being. So let's think about that this morning, this qualification of able to teach. We'll expound it in two parts, the conditions and the aims. So we said we're going to use a couple of passages to unfold this. And and the first passage I'd invite you to turn to is is 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 24. And you're going to see here as we look at this, uh, there's a reason why we're going to examine this text as we, as, we, um, as we take up the principle and the spirit of the idea of Scripture interprets Scripture. And so as you begin looking at verse 24, you can see here the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach. Patient went wrong with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so we know here we're in a a situation where, where Scripture is interpreting Scripture because the very word here, able to teach, is the same one that's used over in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. And so we know if we examine this text, we'll begin to understand something of what is in view in the qualification able to teach. Now obviously here the Apostle Paul is instructing Timothy, who himself was an elder, so we know that when he uses this language of the Lord's bondservant, he is speaking about an elder. Okay? An official office, an official work in the church. We're trying to look at here are the moral conditions, then, first of all, of being able to teach. That's one of the things that we begin to understand as you look at this passage and use it to shed light upon uh, this qualification of able to teach. What you begin to understand is that there are moral conditions. To help us understand that, I want us to look back at verse 23 for a moment because it's the context of, of the exhortation of verse 24 and following. So it says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Speaking again to Timothy, speaking in terms of his role as an elder and a teacher within the church, and I want you to notice that there is a command here. And that command is bound up in the word refuse. He says, you hold it away from you. You do not associate with it. It is a strong powerful command it's as strong as any thou shalt not you've ever read in scripture and the thing that you're thou shalt not to do is to engage in foolish and ignorant speculations the key word here is speculations and that word speculation means 
disputes, arguments, debates, or, or controversy. It's the word that is used in Acts chapter 15 when it's, uh, where it describes the disputes raised by the Judaizers who were demanding that if Gentiles be allowed into the church, they had to live like Jews and function as Jews, being circumcised and keeping the ceremonial law. So we're told there in Acts 15, 2 and 7 that, that there were disputes raised. If you were to look over at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, the Apostle Paul at the outset of that letter to Timothy commands him to pay no attention to what? Myths, genealogies, which give rise to mere speculations. So you see here, as you think about this command, the thing that uh, Peter, or rather uh, Paul, is forbidding the elder to be engaged in, it's a moral quality, saying, don't be quarrelsome, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. To speculations that are just stirring up endless debate and controversy within the church. And he describes the speculations that are be rejected. He says, they are foolish and ignorant. Foolish and ignorant. The word foolish there is the word we get moron from. It's behavior that lacks in sense. Ignorance here is that which is plain stupid. And so this command here comes in a sort of heavy-handed way. He's saying one of the moral qualifications that's needed, and why he's going to expand upon this more in a moment when he gets into verse 24, is that this kind of behavior is dangerous. How do you know that? Because of the reason for the command. He says, you refuse these things knowing they produce corals. You could translate that participle knowing this way, because we know. Now, do you think the Apostle Paul was speaking from experience here? Well, one of the reasons why the books of Timothy were written is precisely because of quarrels and debates and disputes within the church of Ephesus, which were tearing it apart at the seams. The Apostle Paul here is speaking as a man who is full of experience in life and full of experience in the pastoral ministry and in the Christian church. And he says, here's why you refuse stupid debates. Because of what they do. They produce corals. And the word produce there means to have babies. It's organic. It has this idea of reproduction. And so that means then that one debate... Stupid debate leads to another stupid debate, to another stupid debate, to another stupid debate. And before you know it, what happened to the church? It is engulfed in quarrels. Mischievous clashes of conflict and fighting and destruction. How much time and energy have needless debates stolen from the church? How much division and brokenness have stupid debates caused the church? How much brotherly love and kindness have been withheld from believers because of needless and stupid debates? So one of the things here that the Apostle Paul is doing as he prepares contextually for the exposition of the moral conditions of being one who is able to teach is he says, this person who uh, has this quality, who takes up this office, needs to be aware of something. Not every dispute and debate is worth your 
um, plunging yourself into. He says, refuse stupid and ignorant quarrels. So now he expounds on this in a positive direction as we begin to understand the unfolding here of what it means to be able to teach. And so the very first moral condition or qualification laid out here in verse 24 is the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Well, I'll point out to you that the word to be comes from a very strong verb in the original which says compulsion or necessity. It's one of those very, very strong words. And what he says, it's necessary for them not to be something. And that thing which an elder or a servant of the Lord is not to be is quarrelsome. Not running around seeking stupid, fruitless debates. Whether it's in the congregation, whether that's with fellow elders, or on social media. One of the qualifications for being able to teach is knowing when not to quarrel. There's going to be a time when you have to quarrel. There will be things you must fight about within the church. It must be the case that certain things are a red line. Part of the qualification of being able to teach is the wisdom to know when something isn't worth fighting for. Because if you engage in it, all you will do is cause needless strife and quarrel and division. And so the person who would be able to teach is the person who has an awareness that some ideas are too peripheral, some are too impartially understood to make a matter of constant debate or controversy within the church. They haven't been digested. They have not been formulated in such a way that the church as a whole looks at it and says, well, of course, we'll live or die by that. We'll make that part of our confession. And by the way, I would remind you this morning, that is, the, that is one of the key qualifications of a Christian doctrine according to the Belgian Confession. After it sets forth in, in all of its chapters uh, um, what's, uh, what the Reformed Church believes in, it says, we give our backs to stripes. Our bodies to be burned with fire. That's pretty serious. It says, this is, this is something that if somebody teaches against and tries to undermine, destroy, and oppose... Well, well, we'll we'll give our life for this. So it's very clear that that isn't just every single kind of thing we can take an opinion on is one which we should be engaging in controversy or dispute about. The second qualification here is kind to all. The world means to be to be gentle. The elder or pastor who's able to teach is somebody that possesses the quality of being kind. They don't use teaching to destroy or to inflict wounds. How about the last one, patient when wronged? It means uh, the ability to not be resentful when you're attacked. To tolerate the difficulty without uh, losing control. Knight says it denotes an attitude of patient forbearance towards those who are in opposition. It's the capacity to keep your cool. You see, part of the 
moral qualification for being an elder who is able to teach is somebody who doesn't have thin skin, I guess you'd say. Who doesn't have thin skin and walks around feeling vulnerable and weak and views every single criticism or judgment of them as an attack upon them personally so they blow up in anger. You see, this qualification says here that instead of being furious, it says, be patient when wronged. If pastors and elders are running around getting angry and feeling vulnerable all the time because people disagree with them, well, they'll never be able to teach because they'll wear their anger and frustration on their sleeve and they'll take it out on people. And so here, the moral condition for being able to teach, as the Apostle Paul says, is, well, to not be quarrelsome, to be kind, but even to be patient when wronged. Those are the moral conditions we find in our text. But now turn over with me to Titus chapter 1, where we see a spiritual conviction. This is a necessary and essential spiritual condition for being able to, to teach. Here, the Apostle Paul in context is clearly expounding qualifications for the office of elder because he has said in verse 5 that he is to appoint elders in every city. And then verse 7, he begins with overseer and he starts listing a series of qualifications. But now as you come into verse 9, it's very clear that he's come to Uh, the qualification of being able to teach. But I want you to notice what is in the head position in verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word. Holding fast the faithful word. And, And you know what that word holding fast means? Clinging to. Clinging to. Clutching something with firmness. And I would add to that, and I think Calvin had a point here to say it's certainly about a subjective conviction. It's something that you deeply hold. But I think he's true also to say that it's something that you cling to over time. There's a, a persistence in it as well. You know, some some people, uh, you know, get fascinated by by doctrines. They're they're doctrine tasters, and and so they learn one doctrine. They say, "Hmm, that tastes pretty good," and they like this doctrine and that doctrine, and the other doctrine, and then it's when they're uh, held to account for them that we find out whether they really believe them or not. You know, the apostle Paul says here, "You hold fast," and and the form of the verb. Is, is a middle verb, which means that it involves your agency. You yourself hold it. It's your deep down personal conviction. This is a, a spiritual condition for being able to teach. Do you believe it? Do you cling to it? Is it a guide to your life? Is it a conviction and a belief that you maintain through hostility and difficulty and trial and affliction? Is it your belief? Notice the thing that is to be held on to with fastness. 
We're told here the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. The heart of the phrase here is this, this word. And most commentators would settle on the idea that that word is a, is a, is a term, a general term for uh, Christian doctrine in the broad sense. Christian doctrine in the broad sense, but I want you to know the way it's qualified. First of all, it's qualified with being faithful. That word means certain. That's trustworthy. That's not one of those kind of things that you get into a foolish or stupid debate about. Those things aren't certain. They're not trustworthy. They're not money in the bank kind of things. They may be interesting conversation topics, but they're nowhere near this. Faithful. It's trustworthy. And then notice the the other part of it. It's in accordance with the teaching. This word means doctrine. It's didache. It's it's used throughout the New Testament as as that which is in contrast to what is in error. It's that which is true. It is that body of doctrine which is contained in the Word of God, which, uh, which is absolutely certain and true. It distinguishes Christian faith from everything else. Well, here the apostle is saying that the kind of person who who has the ability to teach is the kind of person that has these deep down kind of uh, spiritual convictions holding fast the word which is faithful, the word which is in accordance with doctrine. I want you to notice now finally here the purpose of this conviction Piece together the ideas with me as we work our our way deeper into verse 9. Holding the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that. Now we're beginning to see the apostle set his sights upon the purpose and the role and the aim of teaching. That so that begins to signal for us that Paul is transitioning to the purpose of of this teaching within the church. You see, what he's saying is the purpose of having doctrinal convictions has an aim. It has a spiritual purpose to it. That's unfolded in what follows. Able both to exhort with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. I want you to see that word able. Because it's basically saying adequate. This is what makes a person adequate, sufficient to be able to teach. They have deep, firmly held, fast convictions about the faithful word. And those convictions are applied to a particular end. To exhort with doctrine and to refute those who contradict. John Calvin summarizes this twofold purpose or aim of, of this spiritual conviction that leads to an ability to teach. He says the pastor ought to have two voices one for gathering the sheep, and another for warding off and driving away the wolves. That's beautifully stated. You see, you know that you are able to teach because of the aim. You've sharpened those convictions and you've made them firm and strong and and as solid as concrete. 
Because you have a reason for them. You have a reason for them. And that is that they may be exercised for the gathering and the edification and the upholding and the preservation of the people of God and for defending it against the wolves. And so we have two conditions which begin to help us understand what is it that that is bound up with uh, this ability to teach. Well, it's a, it's a moral qualification, not quarrelsome, kind and patient when wronged. And then there's a, a spiritual conviction holding fast the Word. Before we move on, I think it's worthwhile to to pause here for application, I think we ought to be struck by the conditions. You see, the conditions are, are bound up in the text. They tell us what it, what it is in part to be able to teach. and It is in part having these convictions. And I think it should be instructive to us what the Apostle Paul points to. The Apostle Paul points to moral qualifications and spiritual convictions. And expounding upon the abilities the teacher, he doesn't say they went to seminary or they got a PhD or they took a, a course in public speaking from Toastmasters. Calvin says he does not demand volubility of tongue. In other words, he doesn't require that somebody have the gift of gab. For we see many persons whose fluent talk is not fitted for edification. There's some people that you give them a word or a topic and and they can stand up and be entertaining for an hour. Is that being able to teach? I remember one time in seminary, one of my professors uh, warned us all in our introductory preaching class about what he was looking for. And he says, what I'm not looking for is somebody that stands up here and is a recognizable star from the moment they stand behind the pulpit. He gave the humorous story about one man who signed up for the class and took it once and he stood up there and he read his text and for 30 minutes he held forth with stories and jokes and was spellbinding and captivating. And when he sat down, the professor stood up and he said, I flunked him right on the spot. Because he says that's not what it means to be able to teach. There was no word in it. There's no spiritual truth or vitality in it. It was just hot air. And so Calvin goes on to say what he commends is wisdom in applying the Word of God judiciously for the advantage of the people. This is precisely what is needed in the person who is able to keep to teach as somebody that has the soundness of moral character and has the strength of spiritual conviction to be able to stand up and just simply speak boldly and truthfully in a way that blesses the people of God. This is what is needed. There's so much that's bound up in it, we could hardly even, if, if, if we had a thought pedal and a series of bubbles flowing out from all of them, put different words, we could probably hardly, uh, not. Uh, we, we would fail for words. We just keep on filling them up because... There's so much here. But when you reduce it to two heads, it's fairly simple. There's got to be real moral quality and there has to be deeply held spiritual conviction of the faithfulness of the Word. And if a person doesn't have that, I don't care how many degrees they have behind their name. 
They're not able to teach. So there's conditions. Now I want you to see the aims of this. And we're set up to see the aims here in, in Titus 1.9. And I, I want us to notice um, three of them here. And they're very powerful. Rather, two of them here. And we'll go to 2 Timothy to see the other one. But, but you know here, it's fairly clear what the Apostle says here. Is that the, the holding fast of the faithful word is for an end. So that they will be able to do what? Exhort. The very first thing that is... Um, the aim of the ability to teach is exhortation. Exhortation. Now, I think that's fascinating because it's not exposition. Exposition is a little bit different. Exposition is when you take a text and you begin to pull it apart at its granular level. And you begin to understand the meaning of the text from, from the words and their positioning and from the literary structure and the grammar of the text and, and a whole myriad of other things that we'll take into consideration when we do exposition. But this is an exposition. This is exhortation. In other words, this is taking truth that is well-worn, that is known, that is understood, and it's taking that, whether it be a doctrine or a precept, and, it, and it's, it's bringing it forward to apply it and to do so with urgency. Uh, this is the word that across the New Testament is used when, when, um, when heavy, a sense of heavy-handedness is trying to be avoided. You know, it, it's more of urging, persuasion, something like this, but, but there's teeth in it in a sense. Or it's not just recommending that somebody would do something. No, there's more... There's more force to it. And so, for example, the Apostle says to Timothy, I urged you uh, upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach these doctrines. There's your word, exhortation. Now, we can hardly imagine the Apostle Paul was commending to Timothy that he'd merely recommend that certain men not teach strange doctrines. There's strength in it. There's real appeal. There's force. There's moral and spiritual conviction behind it. Now notice the means of this instruction as you move on. Exhort in sound doctrine. That should be better translated with sound doctrine. So we're now back to this idea of, of doctrine. We spoke about it a moment ago. And the, the New Testament is alive with the concept that embedded within the Word of God are a set of doctrines, or what we would say as Presbyterians, a system of doctrine. You see, doctrine is not something we do. Doctrine is something we deduce, we draw it from the Word. The church is not the maker of doctrine. We fashion and formulate what's already in the Word so we can confess it together. But listen to this, Romans 6.17 But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. There's your word doctrine. To the form of doctrine. How about Romans 16, 17? I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. See, that's something solid. There's a, there's a set or a form to it. And if it's contrary to that, they're to be, they're to be set aside. 
How about 2 John chapter 1? There's only one chapter in it. So verse 8, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, that's the doctrine of Christ, does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, that is the doctrine, has the Father. In another context, Hebrews 6, 2, uh, he says, instruction, that is doctrine about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Clearly there, you sense the idea of a set of doctrines. Well, this is precisely what the person who is able to teach is to exhort with that doctrine which he says is sound. You know, there's a couple of different ways to take what's sound. Sometimes um, it can be used of healthiness. There's a whole set of Greek uses out of the New Testament which clearly mean health. Debatably some in the New Testament as well. And so the idea here is the kind of doctrine that promotes spiritual healthiness. There are others and they make good cases that that soundness has to do with that which is rational and proper and orderly. And of course, as Presbyterians, we love that definition. But, but imagine uh, if there's really a sort of mutuality. What, what is most likely to make you spiritually healthy but that which is rational and order and true? But, but whatever it is, the point of it is to say this is the way uh, the exhortation is to occur. It is to be with doctrine. To be able to teach is to take the truth up with an aim. And it is to exhort somebody and to come alongside them and to say, stop doing this. Or you need to add this quality to your, to your life. You need to develop this spiritual maturity. You need to grow as a father. You need to train your children the, the fear and admonition of the Lord. There's lots of different things that could be in view here with the exhortation. But the ability to teach is directly connected to its aim, which is the exhortation, taking the sound doctrine and applying it to a spiritual application and purpose. Notice the second one here. It's the second part of our verse. And 2 Timothy 2 will elaborate more on this, but it's a shade different, so I want us to make sure we appreciate what's here. The second aim that is bound up in Titus 1.9 here is that they will be able to refute those who contradict. So uh, Paul um, has been around the church long enough to realize that not everybody sitting in the pews agrees about everything. And so uh, the word means to oppose or to speak against. And it tells us something about the teaching situation, which is that, well, uh, not everybody's going to receive the instruction always. There will be some who, who say, yeah, but what about? Or whatever you like. There's going to be a situation when those who teach within the church, when elders take up the word and they apply the word, there will be those who say, but I don't really follow that. Or I have my own way. Well, if it's not in accordance with this pure, or what does he say, a faithful word, or if it's uh, not in accord with sound doctrine, here's what the person who is able to teach as an elder is supposed to do. He is to refute it. That is to rebuke. And to show where the person is wrong. 
And so the person who is able to teach is to bring the Word to bear upon that person who refuses to believe or to practice in a way that is consistent with the faithful Word and sound doctrine. And so it has a disciplinary feel to it. That could be for one reason why the Reformed Presbyterian Church and its Book of Discipline lists rebuke as one of the censures of church discipline that's shy of suspension from the Lord's Supper. It's a real censure. When when the elder has to come and say, "I, I have to rebuke you. You're teaching and you're practicing what's contrary to sound doctrine of the faithful word. We even take vows about this as members of the congregation that if in such a case uh, we are holding or teaching or practicing that which is contrary to the system of doctrine which is confessed here, which is contained in the Westminster Standards and in the Constitutional Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, that we are to acquiesce to the rebuke if it's needed. Why? Because the Word of God sets it up this way. 1 Timothy 5.20 Paul instructs Timothy as follows, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. You see, there's awareness of something, which is that when a congregation becomes overwhelmed with tumult and and, um, and opposition and the word that is being delivered by the elders of the congregation is not being received, it will multiply. And before long, more and more people will be believing and practicing that which is not according to the faithful word and a sound doctrine. And so that means then that the person who is able to teach and functioning in the role of the elder will have to learn not to be silent. We said sometimes there's times when we walk away from the disputes. There's sometimes when we just have to. It's required Because coral generates coral. Why dispute over things that are stupid anyway? It's a waste of yours and my time. But there comes a time when the elder cannot be silent and just look away and pretend that there's no real offense here, no real harm here, no real foul here, no real damage here. No, there's a time when things have to be confronted. When rebuke must happen. When refutation is required. And so that means then that the person who is able to teach has the conviction and the courage and the character to confront what is false and corrupt. And so there's this aim. Able to take the truth and to refute it when somebody holds the opposite or contrary or opposing position. Now, this is uh, amplified, so turn with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, because here we do have, um, uh, uh, I think, maybe a third category of the aim of this ability to teach. What, what, is, what is this ability to teach aimed at? And we've seen it's aimed at exhorting when, when people need to, that general that gentle uh, spiritual nudge forward in the Christian life. It's, it's for, the, for the situation where somebody is oppositional and they need to be rebuked. And, and now it's thirdly for deliverance. 
for deliverance. And, and this passage is quite um, sobering. And so I want us to look here at, at what goes on uh, when it's, it's time to teach. And so beginning at verse 25, it says, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So there's our word we just saw from Titus 1.9. But I want you to see how it's enlarged here. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. Well, there's a horrible situation here now. Because what the Apostle Paul says in the situation where somebody is, is being in opposition and they've been, they've been reprimanded, they have been rebuked, they have been told their, their doctrine or their practice is beyond that which is of sound doctrine and they're not to hold this and they're not to teach it and spread it because it's divisive and dangerous to the people of God. Well, Paul digs in deeper and he says, here's what you should be thinking about is going on now. And the thing that he says is going on is quite sobering for us to think about here because it tells us what is wrong with that person. And the thing that is wrong with them, first of all, is he says they're in the snare of the devil. And that word snare means trap, and it's taken from the world of hunting. And it's the thing that is used to, to, uh, to secure and to, and to lead to the kill of wild prey. And obviously, a, a trap is something that is, uh, that is connected with deceit and with camouflage. So there's all of those uh, undertones here to the sense of the word. But the reality is, when an animal is trapped, it can't go anywhere. It's stuck in that position. And notice here, the one who is the owner and the applier and the user of the trap, well, it's diabolical, it's devil. But now you descend even deeper into the problem here of the, of the opponent who, who's holding to the position of the practice that is contrary to, to the sound doctrine. It's not just that they're in a trap, but notice what it says further. Having been held captive by him to do his will. Now there's some people who wrongly interpret this to say that the last clause is uh, about the end result of teaching that now somebody is led to be captive to do God's will. But that violates the context and it violates the grammar of the text. <clears throat> the eerie, the dark, the sobering reality of our text here is that when somebody is ensnared by the devil, Paul is saying here's what it is at its root level. They are being held captive by him to do his will. You see, so when somebody is maintaining a doctrine or a conviction or a practice that is contrary to sound teaching and to, and to um, this true faith, that the reality is here, they are doing Satan's bidding in the church. And that's what is the ultimate cause of the division, the divisiveness, and the conflict. And all of the devastating, mangling effects that go with it. something else here that's interesting. It says uh, that they may come to their senses, but it tells us that there is a, an irrationality to it. And so, yes, it could be a believer that's sincerely and deeply confused. Clearly, it's a confessing Christian because Paul didn't have Timothy walking up and down the streets of Ephesus buttonholing everybody he saw and, and, uh, and engaging them this way. He's talking about people in the congregation, professing believers. 
And it could be the case that they're not truly regenerate. We don't know that until we see how they respond. But I think the situation is clear enough that this can actually happen to the believer, that they lose their senses. Well, what does Paul say? When this terrible situation occurs to somebody, when they subject their soul to such a dangerous um, uh, spiritual error and deception, that they are literally being taken captive to do the will of Satan. What does he say? Pick up a pitchfork and go after him? Scream at him? Threaten them? No. With gentleness. Correcting those who are in opposition. The person who is able to teach is the person who is able, in the midst of a very dangerous spiritual situation for themselves and the person who's caught up in the deception, to come to them with the strength of gentleness. The strength of gentleness, with humility, with courtesy, with considerateness, with meekness, and correcting. You see, this corrective teaching here has uh, got a little teeth in it. It's calling for immediate and specific change, but it's done with gentleness. It's not done with a bullhorn. It's not done like a drill sergeant. The person who is able to teach, and they see this person who is in opposition, and they've assessed it spiritually, they believe they just may be held captive by Satan and ensnared. In that moment, the person who is able to teach must have this capacity to come alongside that person and correct them with gentleness. And who wouldn't be moved with compassion when they see a brother or sister in Christ ensnared in soul-destroying beliefs and practices? It's not personal to you. Yes, you care for them and love them. You love the truth, but you have a love of the soul. You're concerned with that brother or sister's heart, their destiny, the outcome the damage, the sorrow, the ruin that it causes. So the person who's able to speak is the kind of person that has so much love and concern for the people of God that they come alongside them in their deception and they're being ensnared. They're being held captive. And they bring the Word for deliverance to lead them back to their senses, to show them the deception and the error of their belief and their practice. And here's the thing Paul says here when you back up into verse 25, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. You know that word, we should um, underscore it and highlight it with all of its uncertainty. Because we don't know. We don't know. But the one thing that we do know is the means that God has appointed for the delivering of the deceived Christian 
is this. This gentle correction by the person who is able to teach. This is the means that God has appointed. I don't know of another way to bring somebody to repentance and the knowledge of the truth than this. And I have to say, in all my years of ministry, and I hate to say this, but I would say maybe 20% of the people who find themselves in that position, from what I can see, have been led to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. If we ever get to the point where somebody needs this kind of level of confrontation, they've usually canceled me long before I got there. But if in the case, they really will sit down with me and have a conversation, you begin to see the fangs and the claws of what is diabolical. People who you thought were your friends show their fangs in a way that you couldn't even imagine. And you begin to see that diabolical side of that person. And it's deeply discouraging. But the Apostle does not give us the prerogative based upon whether we make a calculation about whether it might work. No, he says, duty is not defined by certainty of outcome. Duty is defined by the means God has appointed. That's why the manner matters. If you bull rush somebody into repentance, you're just doing persuasion. But if you come and you correct with gentleness, you know on account of the means that the result is from the Lord. The elder who is able to teach must be able to be the one who loves the straying so much they seek to deliver them according to God's means. I think we ought to be struck this morning by the fact that teaching elders are the teaching of the elders is critical to the life and the spiritual health of the church. The context of this instruction is um, Grave spiritual danger for all who are involved. And yet God says, the ability to teach is about that capacity and willingness and desire to deliver the straying with gentleness. Men, the challenge is set before you this morning. If you desire the work of an elder, you desire an excellent work. And a qualification which is necessary for this excellent work is being able to teach. And the marks of those who are able to teach are clear. Moral qualifications and spiritual convictions which have an aim which is to apply the Word of God for the preservation of the people and the restoration of the straying and of the lost sinner. Not all elders will teach with the same skill or force. 
Not all elders will have the same training. Not all will speak with the same fluency and persuasive force. But all elders who have the ability to teach will be characterized by these qualities and convictions. And we do know that when that person has that capacity, they're being raised up by Christ for important spiritual work, which is excellent. So do you love the souls of God's people? Do you love the souls of God's people? Do you long to see the people of God built up in sound doctrine? Do you desire to see the deluded and satanically deceived delivered from their oppression? Then you need to cultivate the conditions of being able to teach. And whether you ever darken the door of the office of elder is really irrelevant. Because the person who cultivates these qualities of moral qualifications, not quarrelsome kind, patient with wrong, and spiritual hold fast to the truth, is the kind of person, whether they serve as an elder, whether they serve as a deacon, whether they're the father, or whether they're a mother, or whether they're an individual just serving the Lord, will be the kind of person who is equipped to be on watch against Satan's devices, which are so obviously dangerous and destructive to the soul, will be able to come alongside a friend and lead them into a path which is right. And so, people of God, I commend to you this morning this qualification of the office of elder, able to teach, because when you seek it, you'll be able to serve Christ and His church well.